From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Today's episode is another Blue Sky conversation about a topic that doesn't always inspire a lot of optimism, climate change. But my guest today, Dan Riker, is someone who's been working in the field for decades. And as you'll hear, he knows the subject matter well, explains his knowledge with a teacher's clarity, and offers many reasons for us to think more positively about the work being done to combat this looming crisis. Dan Riker is an entrepreneur, investor, policymaker, lawyer, and educator focused on clean energy and climate change. He served three U.S. presidents, testified before the U.S. Congress more than 50 times, led the launch of Google's path-breaking climate and clean energy work, oversaw a $1.2 billion annual clean energy R&D budget as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Energy, and co-founded the nation's first investment firm focused exclusively on renewable energy project finance. Dan served from 2011 to 2018 as founding executive director of the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance, and is currently a Stanford University senior scholar, clean energy entrepreneur, and business and policy advisor. Dan came to Stanford from Google, where he served as director of climate change and energy initiatives. He's also held numerous roles in the Department of Energy, including chief of staff to the energy secretary. You'll hear more about Dan's remarkable background and his current work in our conversation, which I hope you'll enjoy just as much as I did. Dan Riker, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Good to be with you. I'm so glad to have this time with you. And I want to start by uh, being very direct with you about your sense of optimism, uh, where we are with, with climate change and the environment. You've been working on clean energy and climate change for decades now, three different presidential administrations. And I'm wondering on a scale of one to 10, how do you feel about how we're addressing climate change today? One being we're doomed and 10 being it's never been better and I'm really optimistic. Well, obviously we're somewhere in between. Um, we're not doomed and we're not doing everything we can. But you know, I, I think um, on the optimistic side is so many technologies that we didn't think we had or we didn't have 10, 20, 30 years ago have, have, have been developed. Um, they're increasingly cost competitive. Um, so we, we increasingly have the technological ability to address climate. Now it's a set of things, how do we actually get stuff built? And that's uh, issues of policy, that's issues of investment. There's a whole set of things. So, you know, one to 10, um, I think uh, Europe is probably the furthest ahead in terms of the regions of the world. I think the U.S. is somewhere in the middle. I think China, you know, building two new coal plants a week, which is what they did in 2022, I think they're, they're a laggard. But overall, I think this is a problem we can we can solve. And I think in doing so, we can not only do good, but we can do well at the same time. Yeah, I, I saw a chart just today, I think, about solar adoption in China that was staggering. I don't know how accurate that information was, but the rate of solar installations in China was was remarkable. Yeah, so the, the Chinese are they're they're doing well on 
deploying clean energy at scale. They're doing well on making vast quantities of it to sell to the world. But meanwhile, they're building a lot of, you know, high emitting coal plants, high carbon emitting coal plants. So that's a real dilemma. And, uh, and that's something that we've got to face as a planet. So we'll get more into what's happening today. I'd love to talk a little bit about you and, and your background and what is it a what is it in your background that made you want to spend so much of your time and energy in your life and career focused on energy and climate issues? So I started out at a really young age getting very excited about environmental issues, you know, the big environmental crisis. This was back in the back in the 60s actually. As a as a 7-year-old, I I I was a camper, I was a Cub Scout and I loved reading the catalogs that sold all the the equipment and one day I was reading one that said it was selling um, winter parkas that were trimmed in wolverine fur, you know, the fur that goes around the hood. And I had just learned in elementary school about the wolverine being an endangered species. And I said, well, hmm, how the heck is that happening? So I went home and I told my mother. She said, well, write the company a letter. So in my seventh, uh, seven-year-old scrawl, I did. And I got a nice letter back. And I said, wow, that's easy. So uh, I got hooked early on. I, I live near, I grew up near the p- most polluted lake in the United States. This is a lake called Onondaga in Syracuse, New York. And that got me very intrigued and concerned. Um, and just, just went on from there. Earth Day, the first Earth Day, 1970, I ran the Earth Day celebration at my, my junior high school. Oh, that's amazing. And so <laughs> I, was, I was hooked. I was really hooked. And I've gone on since. Well, and, and I've, I've described your background in the introduction. You are very prominent in this field. And, and I want you to talk about the Riker Triangle. I have, I have never risen to the level where I have any shapes whatsoever named for me. So you have a triangle, and, but it's, it's a very, I, I find it to be a very helpful, simple way to think about where we are. Could you describe the Riker Triangle and, and why you came up with it and how you think it's helpful? Yes, happy to do that. So it's, it's a simple triangle. At, at the top point of the triangle is technology. Down at the lower left point is policy, and the lower right point is finance. And my whole take on this challenge and opportunity ha- we have with climate change is working at all three points of that triangle and integrating across them. And, and I can tell you a little bit more about both those things. The top of the triangle is technology, and this means we've got to develop a lot of it fast and we've got to make it cost effective. And we're making some good progress there. We've brought the price of various technologies like solar and wind down dramatically. Policy is all about what governments at all levels, local, state, federal, global, uh, need to do. And this is sometimes giving people incentives to do the right thing. This is sometimes setting mandates in place, you know, produce this amount of clean electricity by this date. This is governments themselves buying cleaner stuff. And then at that lower right point of the triangle is is finance. We not only need billions, we need trillions and trillions of investment, private sector investment. And so you and then we've got to really integrate across all three points of that triangle. So I taught a class for several years at Stanford where we had engineering, business, and law students all in the same class looking at clean energy and how to get it developed and deployed at scale. We've got to integrate across all three. And in the in those three 
uh, points of the triangle, tech, finance, policy. You started the conversation by saying we're making huge strides in technology, but we need to build and deploy. From what my novice look at it, there's all kinds of finance pointing towards this, both I'm just looking in the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act, which had it had a different name, I think people would realize how many pro-environmental things are in that. And it seems like policy is moving in the right direction too. And that, you know, I think one thing we take for granted today is is how far we've moved on people just realizing this is a thing and that we are contributing to it. It took a long time, it seems, to get the majority of public opinion moved in the right direction. So, you know, I don't know how you think about the triangle, if it expands or grows or what happens, but how do you feel about how we're doing on those three legs? I think we're doing well. Uh, You know, 10 years ago, this was still, 20 years ago, this was still sort of a, a fringe issue, but I think it's become a mainstream issue. And it is an issue where where you can do good and do well at, at the same time. And so what that means is we have companies, large and small, who are saying, wow, I got to get into this business. There's money to be made fixing this climate problem. And when that sort of thing happens, that's really important. Policy is tricky. The good news in the United States is we've got not one, not two, but three really major laws that are pumping huge amounts of of money into addressing the problem, the, the so-called bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act, and, and a law people have heard less about, but called the Chips and Science Act. You put all three of those recent laws together, and we have we have close to a trillion dollars we can put to work. And what that does, that kind of money then leverages the private money that we need. And so that's how you start to put the trillions and trillions of dollars together to actually get at this problem. What we also have to do across the three points of the triangle is is get get these different communities to talk more with each other. Washington DC has to get better talking to Wall Street. Wall Street has to get better talking to Silicon Valley. And we've got to and that can start in the educational system. You know, I, I said I taught this class at, at Stanford that had engineering business and law students. You send you send people out with that kind of more integrated approach to climate and clean energy. And that's, again, how you can accelerate what we need to get done. I like the way Dan Riker says categorically that this is a problem we can solve. He acknowledges that it's going to take a lot of work on all three sides of the Riker triangle, but he's hopeful we can get it done. And in just the first few minutes of the conversation, you get a sense for Dan's deep knowledge of this subject matter and how much he realizes that solutions will require collaboration from across different sectors of society. To that end, it's encouraging to hear the work he's doing with cross-disciplinary classes. Now, I'm not going to lie, I am a little bit jealous about Dan having the name Shape. But maybe there's a rhombus or something out there I can stake a claim to. Now getting back to our conversation, I wanted to know from Dan how his extensive experience in Washington impacted him and his views on our government's ability to help get this important work done. You spent a lot of time at at senior levels in Washington. Did your time there make you feel better or worse about the federal government's ability to do the kind of things that you're describing right now? I actually have pretty good feeling about the federal government's ability to get things done. So much of the progress we have made on climate and clean energy is a result of the federal government. 
federal government's been at solar, believe it or not, since the 1980s. Sort of early, early. Jimmy Carter put panels on the White House. You got it. Jimmy Carter not only put panels on the White House, he was the first president to actually start to put money, serious money, into solar energy research. You know, he was an engineer by training. Um, and he said, we ought to be able to make this work. So the federal government, when it decides to tackle a problem, can really actually do quite a good job with it. Now, the challenge in Washington is that there's not one, not two, but three branches of government, and they sometimes get into battles with each other. The Congress, you know, in a battle with the administration, in a battle with the courts. And so that's what makes it complicated. But it's a system that overall has worked, does work, and can work, I really think, in in addressing these these problems. And again, the 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 beauty of the current situation is that the private sector is very motivated now because there's money to be made at fixing this problem. There's opportunities that that are out there in clean energy and and addressing climate. So I, I was going to ask you about this maybe later, but since we talked about Jimmy Carter and being an engineer, um, it makes me think of nuclear power. He was, I believe, a nuclear engineer in the Navy or, or served on nuclear powered vessel. Where do you come out on nuclear? I, I love asking this question because I've I've gotten every response imaginable on whether nuclear and your in your tech triangle, if you call it tech, I guess. Uh, where does that fit? Are you are you a proponent? Are you anti? Are you let's keep the plants we have open but not build new ones? Where do you come out on on the promise of nuclear energy? Well, I got I got a chance to take a look at nuclear power pretty early on. I was graduating from Dartmouth College in 1979 when the Three Mile Island accident occurred. And the president of Dartmouth at the time, a guy named John Kemeny, who was, by the way, Albert Einstein's last research assistant, he got a call one day from Jimmy Carter, who said, I need you to run my commission studying the Three Mile Island accident. This was in April of 79. I was graduating. I didn't have a job. I read about President Kemeny getting asked by Carter to do this. So I stood in his parking place one day. He zoomed in in his little Fiat with a cigarette hanging from his lips. And I said, you know, you got a job for me. Long story short, I got a job running the photocopy machine and then got elevated to paralegal. And that was my early introduction to nuclear power. You know, the problem that we had with a particular reactor. And we learned a lot from that accident. Fast forward to today, the technologies have improved greatly for nuclear in terms of safety, in terms of efficiency, all of that. So I'm increasingly optimistic about the technologies. In terms of waste disposal, you know, another thing that that sort of is has been a problem for nuclear, you know, what do we do with the with the used up waste, the so-called spent fuel? We've now got an operating facility in Finland that can put it deep underground. We have one in New Mexico that can a different kind of waste from the nuclear weapons programs, put that deep underground. Both of those look promising. So I think nuclear's got a shot. The biggest, the biggest challenge that nuclear has right now is cost. It remains an expensive form of electricity generation. And as you know, solar and wind with electricity storage gets cheaper and cheaper, is nuclear going to be able to compete? So but I think that's a good challenge. I think it's good to have these different energy technologies competing. So bottom line is I'm more optimistic about where nuclear power fits in than I was 10 or 20 years ago. And, you know, frankly, we need to look at every clean energy opportunity we have. So nuclear is part of that, part of that uh, basket of opportunities. 
That is a that is a thoughtful take with a lot of personal experience. Amazing. And I, I'm seeing that, I don't know if you saw this, but Oliver Stone has produced a documentary, a pro-nuclear energy documentary. And um, he's just starting promoted it, promoting it. He did an event at Harvard the other night. And you know, a guy like that gets behind it and causes some controversy. It'd be interesting to see how public opinion moves on it. But um, I appreciate that response. Yeah, I just... I think that's that's great. We need proponents for all of these, but but I think in terms of being a proponent, you don't want to sort of sharp use your sharp elbows and say this is the one we need, and let's forget the others. We need all of them. We need them to compete straight up. We're, we're not going to do it based on solar or wind alone, nuclear alone. The one that we talk the least about, but which is has our has a the greatest. Uh, opportunity is energy efficiency. Let's 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 use less in the first place, and then we'll need to produce less of the of the green stuff. That's always at the bottom of the list instead of being at the top of the list. And it is our cheapest source of energy. You know, let's waste less, and we know how to do it. We've made dramatic strides in just the plain old boring light bulb from a real power hungry device to today, you know, some of these new technologies use next to nothing. The way we operate our buildings, you know, our air conditioning, our heating, the way we construct the buildings in the first place. And then it takes you to to industry. We forget we've all got all these major energy sucking industries like cement and steel and pulp and paper and aluminum. There's dramatic sorts of things that we can do, and some are being implemented to 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 really cut energy use in industry very substantially. So you got to start with efficiency first, and then you move on to the others. Fascinating. And uh, one that you haven't talked about, but we're about to, is um, hydro. And you have worked on a really interesting challenge, and I'm fascinated by the model. And I'd love to have you talk about it. the The Uncommon Dialogue Program, and I'm interested in it because. I have a sense for how intense the the passions can be around environmental issues and energy and when those things collide. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued by the work you're doing. And then also wondering if this model that you're using in this case for talking about hydro could be applied to so many of these other contentious issues in our country, whether it's gun control or reproductive rights or election fraud or whatever. So can you walk us through a little bit the background and, and this whole concept of the Uncommon Dialogue and what you've been able to accomplish? Sure. So, you know, I was a, a litigator over environmental problems for a number of years, and, and, I, and I was convinced that was the way we were going to have to get things done. I, I still think litigation has a place, but at Stanford where I've been for the last several years, um, there's a program called the Uncommon Dialogue. It basically gets warring parties on tough sustainability issues to sit down and see whether they can work them out. It's been around for a long time. And when I moved jobs at Stanford, I was, I'm now working in a place called the Woods Institute. And that's the home of the Uncommon Dialogue. And one of the, one of the issues that that I've frankly avoided for decades is, is where hydropower fits into the whole environmental sustainability uh, challenge that we have. I've avoided it because I'm a serious kayaker. I love free-flowing rivers. Dams were never my favorite technology. But 2017, 2018, I said, you know, this hydropower area is important. It's, it's about a third of of all the 
low carbon electricity we have in the United States. It's, it's about two thirds of all the, the electricity storage that we have in the US through something called pump storage. And it, it deserved a look. So I got some grad students together at Stanford. We dug in some amazing statistics. There are about 100,000 dams in the United States, just the ones that the government counts. Only about 2.5% of them actually make electricity. The rest are used for all sorts of other things, navigation, irrigation, water supply. And a lot of them have no useful purpose anymore. So I said, well, maybe we ought to get an uncommon dialogue together and see what if we can get the river conservation folks and the hydropower industry representatives to, to find some, some common ground, or as I like to joke, some calm water. And I said, let's do it, realizing this was literally the oldest environmental issue we have in the United States. It goes all the way back to John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club, and the Hetch Hetchy Valley next to Yosemite and the battle over whether that was going to be dammed. It was dammed. So it was a kind of a cool initial meeting, I'd have to say, when we brought, you know, the major hydropower players and the major environmental groups, uh, that one led by the leading river conservation group in the U.S. called American Rivers. Okay, yeah, I want to stop you there, Dan. How, how did you even get him to the tip? Like, what, what's the invitation say? Well, the good news of getting older in the environmental community is that I know a lot of people. <laughs> So the so the signing the the name on the on the letter helped. Yeah, I, I I think it helps. You know, so the 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 head of American Rivers was a friend, and I actually had had served on their board. Um, the head of the National Hydropower Association is a friend, and so I said, let's let's give this a try. And they said, well, okay, we'll at least come to the first meeting. So they did. That was in early 2018. It took us. Two and a half years, but in October of 2020, we we banged out an initial agreement, you know, 15 pages long, and built around what we call the three R's of the nation's 100,000 dams. Rehabilitate some of those for safety, because first and foremost is let's not kill people if the dams get into trouble. The second R is retrofit some of them. You know, as I said, only about Two and a half percent of all the dams even make electricity. So some of those could make electricity if you installed turbines. And the third R is remove. A lot of dams have no useful purpose anymore. So let's let's uh, let's remove some of those, a lot of those. So folks put their name on it. And the key to an uncommon dialogue, at least the way I've been running them, is you then set into motion. A, a number of working groups that work on the various issues that have been identified in the initial agreement. One of those happened to be th the infrastructure that's represented by dams, all the money we need to fix up the 100,000 dams or take them down. So President Biden was, was, uh, was uh, elected a month later. One of the first words out of his mouth was infrastructure. And so we said, this is our chance. By April of 2021, we had an agreement on infrastructure. We took it to Capitol Hill. And lo and behold, we got $2.3 billion with a B dollars to implement our agreement. And we said, wow. So, so, so that was a very exciting development. 
I imagine that many listeners didn't know that hydropower generates a third of this country's low carbon energy. It's a big number. And with Dan's concept of the three R's, it appears that there could be a way to generate even more, while in many cases simultaneously improving the environment. And as you can probably tell, I'm really taken with this idea of the uncommon dialogues that Dan has orchestrated. Instead of having people going into their camps and debating these issues through divisive rhetoric in the media, getting philosophically opposed groups around the table to solve problems seems like a challenging but much better way to get things done. And as you'll hear, Dan sees no reason why these conversations need to be limited to hydropower. People have come to me since and said, we really are intrigued with this uncommon dialogue process. We've got our own set of problems. And the next person to come was the head of the Solar Energy Industries Association, a woman named Abby Ross Hopper. And she said, we're having a real tough time citing big solar projects around the United States. The, these are 500 acres, 1,000 acres, 10,000 acres, the kind of size we're going to need if we're going to really have solar do what we need it to do in terms of climate change. And she said, could we launch one of these uncommon dialogues? So in February 2022, we launched one. Fast forward to today, we're pretty close to an initial agreement between the big solar developers and the big land conservation groups led by the Nature Conservancy, you know, the biggest of the land conservation group. And that would take a very big step that would say, here's where we can support big solar development. Here's where we can't. And let's, let's develop a set of criteria to do that. Here's how we will go into a community with a big solar development. Here's how we won't go into a community with a big proposed solar development. And on and on from there. So, and then one of the things that came out of that is it's one thing to develop big solar projects, but if you don't have transmission lines to get them to market, what's it worth? So, two weeks ago, we launched our third Uncommon Dialogue, and this is on transmission siting and what's called cost allocation who pays for the transmission lines? And so that one's off and running now as well. So piece by piece, we're trying, to, we're trying to solve some of the big problems that we have in actually addressing climate change by getting some of the warring parties together to say, here's how we can agree to go forward. Um, and we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful about both solar and transmission. It's, it's really inspiring because I don't have to tell you, I mean, in this political climate, to get warring parties just sitting around a table. That's why I asked how you did the invitation to even get it started and why I keep thinking, boy, if Stanford or somebody wanted to spread uncommon dialogues to other areas of angst, it would be very welcome. We've been, and we've been asked about that and we're thinking about it. It makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, just, just you know, we, we've had one good, solid success and and we're I think we're close to a second one and, and a third one, you know, is be is is underway, and so we'll see. Um, but I'd like to take it on the road to, to and 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 see what we can do for other problems. Yeah, we, we uh, I, I interviewed a gentleman named Kevin Kelly. You might be familiar with. He was one of the founders of Wired Magazine. He's this fascinating sort of futurist technophile, and he's written this lovely book on uh, excellent advice. I wish I'd had when I was little, and it's all these little aphorisms and stuff. And one of the things he says is when you're when you're sitting down with someone you disagree with. Start with what you have in common, and then you'll find that your disagreements are very much on the fringes. 
you know? So these people gathering on the table, they all care about our planet. They all care about our future generations, right? So you start there and then you, then you get to the other issues that are more on the outside as opposed to, you know, I'm a conservationist and I hate hydro or whatever it is. I imagine that's part of your exercise. Yeah. And it, and it gets even fun at times. The, the, in the hydro case, the lead lawyer for the hydropower industry and the lead lawyer for the river conservation community have not only become good friends, they've, <laughs> they've actually gone on some river trips together. <laughs> yeah. Talk about finding calm water or maybe white water. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the sort of thing that comes from this. They, they, so often you're in your, your own little box fighting and you, know, you, you, you don't recognize that there's a real human you know, over on the other side of the table who, who you might be able to have some fun with to say nothing of maybe reach some serious agreements with. So that's what's, what's exciting about it. Well, and, and uh, we've talked before, I, I live in Maine and, and we've had this controversial transmission line with Quebec Hydro coming down into New England and, and um, it finally went to a statewide referendum and just, again, people went into their camps. I'd love to talk to you about how do you... Th- how do you, Dan, think, and the folks you get around the table, how do you think about these trade-offs between the environment and energy? It's not easy, right? So you've got this pristine 10,000 acres and someone says we need to put solar there. How, how do you manage those trade-offs? Well, they can be tough, but I think what you find is that there, there are literal areas of common ground. There, there are places that you can build what you need to build. And there are places where you can save what needs to be saved. And it's a matter of, of people being open and honest. First, that there is a mutual problem here called, called climate change. And we, in a sense, all want to solve it. That makes it a lot easier if the overall objective is, is, is to actually solve climate from an energy standpoint and from a conservation standpoint and all the like. Then you know, you got to dig in, you got to get into the details, you got to analyze the situation. And so, for example, in citing solar, we do need to cite a lot of it. I think, you know, the best estimates are somewhere between five and 10 million acres. You know, that's three or four Yellowstone parks worth of solar spread across the United States. And it's so it's 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 a big amount of land in one sense, but it's a relatively modest amount of land in another sense, given the size of the U.S. And then the question is, well, where are there places where you could actually agree to cite some of it? And we 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 can find those, and people are getting pretty creative. We have fifty thousand um, hazardous and toxic waste sites in the United States, with a lot of land representing those. Some of those have been really well cleaned up over the last twenty years. That's a very interesting place. Old old mine lands, you know, surface mine lands. That's another interesting place where you could do it. There are places where we're we're shutting down lots and lots of old power plants, you know, old coal plants uh, all over the country. And guess what they have? They actually have transmission lines that run right into them. So there are creative places we can start to put it. There, there's even emerging technologies. One's called agrivoltaics, where agriculture and solar meet each other. How can you integrate solar um, more effectively into a, into a field of, 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 you know, a farm field of some sort? And how can you grow stuff literally next to or even beneath a solar panel? 
Um, how can you spread out the solar panels and put put crops in between them? All of these take work. All of these take further analysis. But I do think we we do have the land um, to site this kind of solar we need. It's just a matter of getting people to to get creative and to be open about where the best places to do that are. Now you mentioned you mentioned transmission in Maine. Transmission is actually a trickier issue because think about a 500 mile transmission line. The people at one end where they make the electricity are benefiting. The people at the other end where they receive the electricity are benefiting. It's those people along the 500 miles of the transmission line who aren't benefiting very much. That's why that's actually a trickier siting issue and one that, you know, as I said, we've we've launched an uncommon dialogue on that. And I I think there are answers, but that's going to be a really heavy lift to get that one done. Dan lays out some pretty daunting challenges here, but it's encouraging to hear such a smart and committed person describe creative approaches being taken in the climate change space. And I love the personal stories about people on opposite sides of these issues actually forming friendships during these difficult conversations. It might sound like a small thing, but relationships like this can go a long way towards forming constructive solutions for challenging and divisive issues. Now, back to our conversation. So we've talked about land. We've talked about rivers. uh, Let's talk about oceans. There's a lot to talk about with oceans, I think, in climate. Uh, One, though, that comes to mind, and again, a lot of discussion in Maine, is offshore wind. And our uh, current senator, former Governor Angus King, was uh, gave a speech years ago. Uh, actually, when he wasn't holding office, it was between his governorship and senator, about turning Maine into the Saudi Arabia of wind, uh, the Gulf of Maine. What are your thoughts on that? I find the technology fascinating because the engineering of it and the size of these things, and there's rock and waves. And do you have a position on offshore wind? And is it something we should be excited about, or not so much? I do have a, a deep interest in offshore wind and have had some experience. And it's actually started when I was at Google. I was the director of energy and climate at, at, at Google for several years. And we, we invested in something called the Atlantic Wind Connection, which was going to be a, a transmission line that ran along the East Coast that allowed offshore wind projects down the coast to connect to a transmission line and bring their electricity to shore. That didn't go forward, but it got me very interested in in offshore wind. In terms of the technology, we've made some very interesting progress on offshore wind. The projects that have been built around the world to date have been in shallow water, where the big towers sit on the bottom. But where we're headed is this floating offshore wind platforms. And if you can float these, you have two two real benefits. One, you can go further offshore so people don't have to see these 500-foot, 1,000-foot wind turbines. They're really big, way bigger than the wind turbines on land. And so that's, that's really one benefit. And it also allows you to get into areas around the world that you wouldn't otherwise be able to um, install offshore wind because it turns out most of the coasts around the world are adjacent to deep water, not shallow water. The Atlantic is, provides a lot of shallow water out fair distance, same 
in Western Europe, but most of the world, Japan, California, it's all deep water. So we're moving to these floating systems. And I've had a chance to work with, with the inventor of the first floating um, wind turbine in the world, a, a Danish fellow named Henrik Steesdale. And it's, it's a brilliant idea. There's lots of competition for that technology. So, so two things. I think it's, it's very promising because there's vast amounts of wind in the ocean. And if we can get out into those deeper areas, we get more of the wind, we get a bigger area to develop, and we're further offshore so people don't have to, have to look at the turbines. And again, though, you have to do smart sighting. You can't just put these anywhere. But given the vast size of the ocean, given that vast percentage of the world population lives on coasts, offshore wind makes a lot of sense. So get them further offshore, get them into the, the, the windier places, select those places more carefully and use these advanced technologies. And I think it's a very, very exciting technology. How about tidal? Is one of the things, obviously with wind and solar, you know, it can be cloudy, it's not windy, but the tides, you know, twice a day, every day. <laughs> but I, I just know the technology has been really tricky and catching fish in them and all that other stuff. But it seems like people are still at it. Is, is tidal something that gives you optimism? Yes, tidal is is still kind of there in this this broad mix. I, I think it, I, I I'm not an expert on tidal. I don't know it all that well. One of the things that, unlike wind, where you know the footprint in the water is pretty small and the tower sticks up and captures the wind way above, the problem with tidal is you've got to spread it out on the water. Um, so it it could it can use more of the of the water surface, I think is one of the challenges. So I don't put it high on my list of, of ones with the greatest potential, but I also don't cross it off the list. I think it's it's worth working and in certain parts of the world it it probably offers a lot of opportunity. So again, we need a we need a big mix of of, of technology opportunities. And so we've talked about efficiency, we've talked about clean energy, transmission. What about carbon capture and different methods to do that? And, and ocean is one of the opportunities, as I understand, for that. Where, where do you come out on the more promising ideas around carbon capture? So carbon capture is, um, has sort of come on the scene in a very, very big way in the last five to 10 years. Um, it essentially means either you take the carbon dioxide or other global warming gases out of a, you know, out of a generating facility, for example, that might burn natural gas or oil or coal. And you do something with that carbon dioxide. You might pump it underground. You might use it to make a product. There's a second version of carbon capture technology where you actually suck the CO2 out of the air directly. It's called direct air capture. And there's a third technology. And I uh, it's called trees. Trees are the natural carbon capture units. And if you can do forestry in a responsible way, you can get at carbon capture as well. Um, so it's a big, complicated area. I am more optimistic about one of the places we really need to do carbon capture, which is in heavy industry. In other words, steel, pulp and paper, aluminum, cement production. We need to make those materials. There's no doubt about it. And those are heavy carbon emitting 
processes. So that's a place where we we we've got to make we've got to do something to cut the emissions. And so carbon capture may well have a place in those technologies. Would that literally be sort of an on-site carbon capture? Like there may it would be on-site, or I'm and I'm less optimistic about this. The the direct air capture you could frankly do that anywhere, but but I think that's a that's a tough one given the quantities of CO two we've got to withdraw from the atmosphere, and again you know smart forestry where you you know you make decisions about forests not to cut down in part because of their carbon capturing potential, large areas of, you know, tropical forest, if we can avoid major tropical forest deforestation, you're, you're, you're helping with to capture carbon from the atmosphere. And if they, if you can let those trees grow to, you know, maturity, you're capturing it for a long period of time. And if you do cut the trees down and say, use them for uh, combustion to make electricity, capture the CO2 from that process. And that way you not only get to be carbon neutral, but you can actually go carbon negative, meaning the uh, the good thing about a tree is that it captures CO2 you from the atmosphere, you cut it down, you make electricity from it again, and you capture that, you're actually going carbon negative. Whereas if you burn a chunk of coal, that that carbon has been underground for millions of years, and you're releasing it to the atmosphere for the first time. With trees, you're recycling the same CO2, and if you can then put that underground, you actually can go carbon negative um, in the atmosphere. It's a great way to think about it. And, and it's fun thinking about you know, trees. It's, it's amazing how many of these solutions are, <laughs> are part of nature, and but also adding technology. I was reading something the other day about people who are reforesting and, and using drones to plant the seeds. You know, these things, bringing these technologies together, it's, it's pretty inspiring, I think. Well, it's, it's we, we call it, we call those natural climate solutions. That's the acronym, NCS. And there's a whole bunch of them involving forests and agriculture and the oceans. And so, uh, and seaweed, you know, you, 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 you talk to some of the big land conservation groups and they will tell you, yes, we're 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 helping to address climate directly, and one of the ways we're doing it is through these natural climate solutions. And so that's why, you know, the big conservation groups are at the table in a pretty fundamental way when it comes to addressing climate. They also, you know, are also trying to address this other crisis we've got, which is the the, the loss of biodiversity. You know, as more and more species go extinct. Um, we're losing a lot of nature's capabilities to do a lot of things we need. Uh, so, so it's a it's a it's a nice mix if you can bring these natural climate solutions together with the the, the human invented solutions, and if we can put those together, they can we'll have an even better shot at at addressing the climate crisis. It's always fascinating and a little humbling for us humans to realize how many solutions to climate change can be found right in nature, like simply planting more trees. And it strikes me that Dan is quite a realist and he doesn't assume that we're going to do away with heavy industry anytime soon. And as a result, we need to work on on-site carbon capture facilities producing needed products like steel and cement. And who knows if some other technologies or methods like tidal power will ever take root 
but it does seem like an all-of-the-above approach is going to be required if we're going to make a difference. And now, back to my final segment with Dan Riker. I'd like to, as we get close to the end here, do a little thought experiment. So I, I interviewed a woman named Marcy Frank a while back who writes the Climate Optimist newsletter for the Harvard Chan School. And she told a, a story that was both sort of funny and, and lovely, but also kind of sad. She has a son who I think is 12 or 10, came home from school one day, all disgruntled, threw his backpack down and said, you know, I'm not doing my chores or something like that. And she said, what's the problem? She said, well, my teacher told me because of climate change, we got 30 years left. And so what's the point? And and now this poor teacher didn't know that this guy's mother <laughs> wrote the Climate Optimist newsletter. So if you had been invited to go address this young man's class a day after this little dust up, what would you tell young people? Because one of the reasons I'm doing the work I'm doing is I, I have kids in their 20s and they have friends who are talking about not having children, which is obviously a, a fine choice, but not having children because we're in such a bad spot with climate change and the future is going to be grim. What would you tell a, gr- a group of you know, 12-year-olds or even, frankly, college students about why they should be more hopeful about all this? Well, first, you know, I would bore them with my triangle and, and tell them we, we're making progress. And, and if we can keep making progress and work across the three points of the triangle, I, I would start with that boring lesson. But, but more, more fundamentally, the, I really do think we're increasingly in a place where you can do both good addressing climate and you can do well. You can actually profit from making good choices and, and making products that are going to help address climate. And the, and the more that those two things intersect, doing the right thing and, and frankly making some money at it, the more I think it's likely that we're going to be able to address these problems. And the more I think we recognize that while climate is a longer term challenge that we've got, you know, measured in years and decades, it, it, it can help us address some of the near-term issues we have on the planet, like food and education and safety and security. They, 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 they go hand in hand. You know, if we can be more efficient in the way we use energy in, in our homes and agriculture, we can, we can save people money that they can use otherwise to put food on the table or to get their kids educated. So it's not as if this is a separate problem that, you know, only people in wealthier nations can address. It, it's a problem that we all face. And if we do a good job in addressing it, we can help with some of those other problems along the way. So, so I'm, I'm relatively optimistic that this is a problem we can, can address. And frankly, it's a job creator. It's a big job creator, and people are going to school and studying this. I work at something at Stanford called the the Door School of Sustainability. Who would have thought that there's a the first new school at Stanford in seventy plus years is going to be called the School of Sustainability? People are going to school studying this stuff, and that you know it, the next generation might be worried about their future, but the good news is there's all sorts of ways to get involved. And, and do something about it. And, you know, I'm involved at, at Dartmouth and there's a, there's a big new institute uh, focused on energy and society. You know, who would have thought that you create an institute on that? So it's, it's, it's very exciting, I think. So I, I think I could give a shot at, at, at leaving these concerns 
20-somethings with, with, with a more optimistic take on things. I'm a big fan and have worked for years and years on, you know, two of our biggest hopes for addressing climate, which are solar, solar and wind. And I think they are going to be a big answer. They're already increasingly a big answer. But we've got to, we've got to address three things with respect to, to, to getting solar and wind deployed at scale in the U.S. and around the world. First is siting. You know, got to figure out this, this challenge of finding, finding areas of literal common ground that people can agree where, where, you, where you build these things and where you don't. And I think we're making some progress there. And I told you what we're trying to do with the Uncommon Dialogue. The second is the sun doesn't always shine and, and the wind doesn't always blow. This so-called intermittency problem is the word we use. And the good news there is we're getting better and better at storing electricity, both the improvements and the drop in prices that we're seeing in, in large battery systems, but also something called pump storage, which goes back to the to the 70s when we built all these nuclear power plants and we couldn't turn them down at night. You don't operate a, you don't turn a nuke on and off. And so we had to figure out something to do with the electricity at night. So we built these things called pump storage projects where you pump water from a reservoir up to a pond on the top of a hill at night. And the next morning when you need the electricity, you run the water back down through the pumps and those become generators and you put the electricity back on the grid. And we're we're making big progress with projects like that in the US and all over the world. So both batteries and pump storage. The third is transmission. Is we've got a we've got to site a lot of transmission in this country and around the world if we're going to get the solar and wind to market. But again, I, I think there's real promise and progress that we can make with transmission if we can get people to sit down and, you know, agree on how to, on how to get it cited and, and agree on who's going to pay for it. Um, a tough problem, but I think it can be solved. So solar and wind needs to be a big part of the answer. There are these three challenges, siting, intermittency, and transmission, but I think we can make progress on all three. Well, that's terrific and and inspiring and the perfect way to, to wrap this up. There are a few people I think that I could have spoken to have a longer history with this, more deep knowledge of it, and a really great way of explaining it to a layperson like myself. So thank you so much for being on the Blue Sky Podcast. Take care. a lot speaking with Dan Riker and really appreciate his optimistic, realistic, and practical thoughts about how we might solve the climate crisis. And as Dan points out, so much of what he's talking about here will not only make a positive impact on climate change, but will also produce new jobs in the process. And it's pretty cool to hear that the first new school created at Stanford in 70 years is the Door School of Sustainability. One can imagine some really sharp students entering that program and emerging with big ideas for new approaches and technologies that today we can't even imagine. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky episode with Dan Riker. And if you did, you might want to subscribe to this podcast to be sure you don't miss any future episodes. While you're at it, if you haven't already, 
You might also want to follow the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.